We are here today with Asanka Pathiraja. We're going to be talking about a world event between Ukraine and Russia. So Asanka, let's jump right into the questions. Um, the first question, just to give us some perspective before we go on, uh, what exactly led to this war? You know, this is a, um, a truly terrible event that has occurred uh, with global ramifications. Um, its origins are arguably um, centuries old, but have uh, really crystallized um, over the last uh, seven, eight years uh, since the uh, annexation of Crimea by Russia, by Vladimir Putin's Russia in uh, 2014. And uh, essentially the, the beginning of a, a proxy battle between the Ukrainian central government and the uh, Russian-backed separatists in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, this is a, you know, as I said earlier, you know, going back centuries, uh, Ukraine and Russia have had fraternal bonds, um, eventually Ukraine gaining its full statehood around the time of the, um, the communist takeover of, of Russia, of, of what was then, uh, uh, the, the Russian empire led by Tsar Nicholas, which then eventually turned into Lenin's Russia. Now, where we are today is, uh, is, um, a conflict essentially of five factors, I would say. Uh, number one, uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, uh, NATO has made kind of continual progress into areas which were traditionally considered uh, the backyard of Russia, and which has um, in many ways threatened Russia and um, caused them to seek to deter expansion. Uh, you know, for 20 years they've, they've voiced their opinions and now they've you know, clearly resorted to military means. Um, number two, um, the geopolitical situation across Europe was ripe for a, um, an aggressive action by Putin. Uh, number one, you saw the, um, the transition in government in Germany away from this, the kind of decades long rule of Angela Merkel and kind of the, the political vacuum that that created. Uh, anytime you have a new leader uh, that comes into place, you know, they're dealing with a different, you're dealing with a different country and a, mm -hmm. a country that's a lot less likely to be able to take uh, aggressive state, uh, aggressive stances on the world stage. So Vladimir Putin was well aware of that. Um, in England, you had a prime minister in Boris Johnson who was under severe threat at the beginning of the year. People forget this of, you know, potentially losing the premiership. He was, um, he, due to his kind of uh, COVID activities or parties that were held during the COVID time was under a lot of pressure and there were beginning, there were cracks beginning to emerge in his coalition that it could have led to his resignation. So hence, you know, he was distracted. Now, NATO, within NATO, Germany and, and Great Britain play a very outsized role. And so having both of those countries kind of distracted into the side certainly would have affected um, their ability to react, or so Putin thought. And on the U.S. side, of course, we've been dealing ever since uh, 2016, we've been dealing with a very hyperpolarized the United States, which is um, increasingly uh, partisan and divisive. Uh, culminating in our January the 6th moment and uh, also cannot discount the the optics and the kind of horrific uh, 
ill-planned withdrawal from Afghanistan, which did make America seem to be very weak, um, at least topically, globally. So, you know, that would be, um, you know, one reason why, which would have precipitated Putin believing that he could go into Ukraine with very minimal Western kind of, um, I, I, I hesitate to use the word resistance, but without dealing with a unified West. Now, of course, that has not come to fruition the way he, he anticipated, but that's one of the reasons why he probably thought the war needed to occur now and not later, and, and also not before. Yeah. Um, the next is a very simple thing, weather. Um, the Ukrainian border with Russia is actually um, at a very unique time period frozen. It's a land border, and so that allows for the transference of troops and uh, mechanized divisions across that uh, region uh, in the most efficient way for the Russians. So he had a very tight window, um, and that window was kind of drawing to a close um, as we approached um, the beginning of March. And so he had to move lest he had to wait again another year, which you know, global conditions could be entirely different. Um, number three, the Olympics. A lot of people didn't realize this, but you know, China and Russia have had um, closening relations, uh, at least publicly, uh, f- for the last decade or so. And um, in this instance, the Vladimir Putin um, did hold off on any military action in Ukraine such that Beijing could have the full spotlight of the world. Factor four would be uh, Putin's belief that oil and Western Europe's dependence on oil from Russia would counter any um, ability for them to have cohesive, strong economic sanctions. Because the reality of it is, is that Russia may produce the oil, but given the close interlinking with with Western Europe and especially their financial institutions, you were looking at a situation where loans that go between both countries would be severely affected by a uh, ban on Russian oil or a ban on, on the free flow of um, currency back and forth between the countries. And so Putin likely over again, overestimated his hand, but um, that certainly factored into, into his consideration. And I think fifth is the uh, reality that Putin over the last 20 years has really consolidated his rule over Russia and uh, very systemically shut down any opposition and has came to the conclusion that internally he would be in a position to handle any, um, any uh, derision against him uh, for, for the war. And and we're clearly seeing this borne out with the uh, mass arrests and lack of uh, ability to, for people to express dissent. And, um, you know, it was a, a series of, you know, from jailing his opponents to poisoning uh, people who went into exile um, to uh, deaths of individuals who opposed him. There are many different tools that he employed, but um, certainly from his perspective, internal control was, had been consolidated. And he would, from his, in his opinion, he wouldn't face any um, resistance internally. And so we talk about Russia thinking that they wouldn't have a lot of resistance internally. And you also mentioned that they kind of overestimated or I guess underestimated the response that the West would have. So militarily, you know, today's March 18th and we're looking at what seems to be a de facto stalemate between Russia and Ukraine, at least from a military perspective. 
um, why has Russia become so bogged down in a conflict that originally everybody feared would be extremely quick? You know, that's an excellent question. When, um, as Russia began to mass its troops on the border with, uh, with the Ukraine, um, there was the belief in the West that the Ukrainian army, as well-equipped as they may be, would lack the logistical and um, support, logistical and morale to be able to successfully resist the Russian army. And also there were a lot of question marks around the leadership of Zelensky. Um, he's a lawyer turned comedian, successful comedian turned politician, and no one really knew what his backbone would be. Now we have obviously have seen what his backbone is and yeah. he's emerging as the Churchill of the 21st century. Um, but prior to the battle or prior to the war, uh, that was yet to be determined. Now you can look at what's occurring right now and, and break it down on several levels. Um, so why is it that the, that the Russians can't move as effectively as, as one would imagine they would be able to do? I mean, this is the feared Russian army, right? The, the bear of the East. Um, number one is logistics. Now, when the Russian army was bearing down on the Ukrainian border and then eventually cutting into Belarus, most of the movement occurred because through railroads and the, the in, inside of Russia, uh, they have a very extensive rail network that allows the, uh, move for the movement of troops and equipment very efficiently. Um, they, and one consequence of that is that they don't have to really think about fuel and how to get operating supplies to the forward positions. Now, as you cross over into Ukraine, it's a completely different story. Now that for the first time they're on roads and they're on and, and on the countryside and in, in the forests and in the fields. And now they are getting further and further away from any logistics hubs. And one interesting at, uh, fact here is that the Russian um, military grossly underestimated how many trucks they would need to transport fuel uh, to the forward moving tanks and mechanized divisions. And as a result, they had to um, order more in but and send them into Ukraine. But of course, those are unarmed and they become easy targets for the Ukrainian resistance. So you kill the fuel, you kill the tank, right? And so that's okay. So that's one reason why they haven't been able to progress as fast as people would assume logistics. Number two has been the fierce resistance of the Ukrainian uh, people and the Ukrainian military. Um, in 2014, when Russia rolled into Crimea, it was done unopposed. And the belief in this instance was that essentially the same would occur. Um, but one differentiating factor from that time period was the extensive training that the Ukrainian military received from the, uh, from the West, from NATO and the United States, and also the significant amount of arms and modernization of the Ukrainian military. And the intangible, which has borne out here, is the fierce loyalty the Ukrainians have to their country and their willingness to sacrifice themselves and form one of the most fierce resistance worlds the world has seen since World War II. Um, and so those are some of the reasons why you know Russia continues to get bogged down. And I don't envision a scenario here where this is going to change um, such that you would see troops in Kiev, you know, in the next couple of days, mm. this is a, 
a brutal war. It's going to get more brutal because as Russia gets more frustrated, they will turn, and as we have seen, have turned to the bombardment of civilian areas um, and siege warfare, which is what they successfully used in uh, the Syrian civil war um, in Aleppo, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, given its proximate nature to Europe, the, to employ those tacti- tactics are going to cause severe condemnation from the West, galvanize and unify NATO in ways that could not have been envisioned just two months ago and likely will increase the amount of aid that's coming into into the Ukraine uh, on the military side and and also financial resources to, um, to 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 make this war really bogged down. Now this is a, a little bit of a, a an extension of the the military question, but we talk about Russia having overwhelming forces in the Ukraine while they're receiving aid relatively on their own from a military standpoint, um, with the exception of the training. Do they have any non-traditional um, military tactics that they're using that we know of? Is there something that is helping them to to hold this front? Yeah, what's been very effective for the Ukrainian military have been drones and uh, their use of drones to... So to, modernized army. Yes, absolutely. And they, although in, in relative terms, these drones are very very simple compared to what we operate here in the United States or in other NATO countries, but they have been very effective against uh, Russian tanks just sitting in the street. Number two has been effective use of guerrilla tactics. Um, A lot of ambushes as now the Ukrainian military media has been able to release to the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, These slow moving convoys are essentially open targets. And what the Ukrainian military has done very effectively is to draw them in, lull them into a, a sense of safety and then with the, the means that they have, they're able to affect enough damage that causes retreats. And um, so I would point to, the, to, the, to drones and also the anti-tank uh, weaponry provided by the United States government, namely the Javelin. So if you look decades back to the Afghani war, which was the last calamitous uh, um, conflict for Russia, uh, Soviet Russia at that time, mm-hmm. it was the Stinger missile that arguably changed the tide of that war. And in this case, the Javelin had already been distributed to the Ukraine and they have been using that to great effect against the uh, invading Russian forces. Very interesting. So, okay, now we can kind of think bigger. So you mentioned NATO, you've mentioned it a few times. Uh, what are the geopolitical uh, consequences of what's going on for, for the European Union and, and outside of that? You know, that's a great question. And uh, the word I would use would be tectonic. You know, since the end of World War II, there has been, um, outside of Yugoslavia and the, the civil war there and NATO intervention eventually in Kosovo and in, in Serbia, um, a, a de facto peace uh, on the on the continent, and then the uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, a belief that we were moving closer towards east-west integration and, and cooperation, and I think a lot of that did fuel ultimately the decision by Western leaders to incorporate you know Russian oil into their economies in such a, if you want to say, overly leveraged way um, that they clearly did. Now, <clears throat> to your point, uh, the. Likely for the first time since World War 
II and since the collapse of um, the Soviet Union, Eastern European countries are going to be forced to rearm. And when I say rearm, they're obviously already withstanding militaries, but there will likely be an increased um, defense expenditure per GDP um, because the reality of military action is now very crystallized in the minds of the leaders in Eastern Europe and also in their pop- with their populations. So they'll, this is something that populations will demand from their leaders. And so oddly enough, if, if Putin was hoping that he would be able to take advantage of a, uh, of a disunified NATO, he's done quite the opposite in that he has now unified NATO with a singular objective uh, such that they haven't had since the 1980s. Um, on one particular example is Germany. Now, so Germany, since the end of uh, World War II, has maintained a very neutral stance. You had Western, Ger- Western Germany and Western Germany mm-hmm. and the Eastern part, which was under Soviet control, essentially the, G- the GDR. Mm-hmm. Since re- reunification, they have put very minimal resources towards their own defense expenditure. Uh, partly due to history and the the shame of World War II, and partly due to policy, because you know guns and butter argument in economics, you have a um, country that spends more on defense. They're just by nature not able to spend on other economic activities. And what we saw within the last several weeks is the um, uh, desire and now decision by the German government to increase defense expenditure by a multiple. This is not a percentage, this is a multiple. So this is going to have serious consequences uh, within Europe and arguably the world because if you have a strengthened German military, they're able to play a greater role in conflicts in the future, right? But simultaneously, as any society gets more... um, I don't mean to be hyperbolic here, but more militarized, so to speak, there's an increased likelihood of getting involved in military conflicts. Mm -hmm. So whereas Germany in the past would rely on their economic prowess to slide into situations to influence global events, there will be a stronger likelihood that in the future with a more robust military, that they will use that tool to affect global events. How that's going to play out is anyone's guess at this stage, but the fact that they have moved in that direction as a result of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine is certainly worth noting. Um, if you look at the situation as between China and Taiwan, now this has been a long simmering conflict and so many people have been drawing analogies between what's occurring with, with the Ukraine and what could occur with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Now, a little bit of backdrop there. Uh, during the civil war in China, which eventually led to the Mao Zedong and the, and the Communist Party taking control of the mainland, their opposition fled to Taiwan and set up their own republic. And um, they claimed that to be the, the true republic of China. And it took decades for the global community bef- to eventually recognize mainland China, mainland China as, as China, but it left Taiwan and China at a constant source of friction as the, as the mainland views it as part of greater China, 
greater communist China and the mm-hmm. Taiwanese viewing them as viewing themselves as independent. So that's the backdrop. Now, to date, the Chinese um, mainland in, in Beijing, they have not made military overtures to retake the island. Now, their military is rapidly modernized, has increased in strength. Um, and though the Taiwanese, now if you look on the map, China and Taiwan, China is a large country and Taiwan is a small island. Despite the geographical difference in size, Taiwan is, still has a very robust military because most of its aid comes from, from the West. And so analysts believe that if Putin were to successfully go into Ukraine, take Kiev without any true cost, that would likely turn to a situation where China would believe that they could go into Taiwan. And the reality is that um, it would be a very um, brutal battle and it would cause tremendous economic disruption in the region and the globe, in addition to um, a uh, destabilization of Asia. Because this would be the first time that the Chinese are really um, using their military in a very aggressive way. Uh, to date, they've, been, they've adopted a, a very peaceful posture, expansion but no war, and most of their the effectuation of their global political aims have been done through the, through money and through economics. Um, one can point to Africa, to Southeast Asia, South Asia, um, as examples of that. But uh, for them to use their military in, a very, in an aggressive posture would be a radical shift. Um, and so the question now becomes: Okay, now that the Chinese have now the Chinese have seen what's happened to Putin and Russia in, in the Ukraine, and they've likely have also seen the uh, now the economic isolation that Russia faces, which is extraordinarily severe, cannot understate that. Um, and number two, it's not as easy as one would imagine to go into another country, especially when there is, um, when you're met with the type of resistance that they likely would see in uh, Taiwan. So in sum, the geopolitical ramifications are wide um, and we will look to see moving forward a more unified NATO, uh, Eastern European countries more willing to expend more money to bolster their defenses and uh, military prowess, um, a more assertive Germany uh, on the world stage, and uh, China, which interestingly enough, likely no one would have predicted this, less likely to go to Taiwan given that it's seeing how badly a military uh, incursion can go, both from an economic and military perspective, mm-hmm. but mainly economic. So you mentioned economic, and we've talked a lot about military and, and politics, but, um, and you've also mentioned a shift of investment from more uh, education, economics, to, to more of a military focus in Europe. Um, I'm wondering what other economic consequences this conflict is is going to cause. So uh, similar to the geopolitical um, consequences of this conflict, uh, the economic consequences are are quite severe. Stepping back, we have been in a, um, globally, we've been in an inflationary environment. And you probably saw yesterday the Fed decided to increase interest rates for the first time, I believe, since 2018 or the end of 2018. 
Uh, why is that occurring? Um, the COVID crisis caused central banks around the world to pump money into the systems to essentially prop up the economies as as uh, COVID wreaked havoc on on supply chains, on um, economic output, GDP. So money was very cheap, and so borrowing increased, and we essentially just began to overpay for the same goods and services that we uh, had always enjoyed. And so into this inflationary environment, um, add an energy shock, which uh, Russia has provided uh, vast quantities of um, gas and oil supplies to the West and are significant contributors to the, to the global uh, oil supply. Now, as we have enacted these sanctions, uh, clearly that's causing a disruption in, in energy. Um, and mix that with the already um, volatile global economy and uh, an inflationary environment, and the results are not good. Now that's on, on the, from the energy perspective. Now, if you go dig a little bit deeper, you know, for Russia to have been able to export oil into Western Europe in the, in the way that it did over the last couple, several decades, you know, they did have to rely on loans from Western banking institutions. And so the exposure of those banks to the Russian situation is um, very strong. And when you have that type of exposure and suddenly your client is unable to pay the bill, it uh, could lead to very catastrophic consequences. So as much as people want to talk about, you know, shutting off the ability of the Russians to export oil and shutting off their economy from the rest of the world vis-a-vis -vis sanctions, there will be a ancillary effect on Western institutions who had prior to the conflict been doing business with Russia and so that's something that we have to keep in mind um, in terms of the, the, the consequences of this conflict, that it won't just be limited to a collapse of the Russian economy, but also will have serious consequences eventually in the West uh, with the institutions that have been um, levered into the, into the Russian oil sector. Um, now, that would be energy, would be energy and then um, kind of loan exposure is, are two kind of very immediate economic consequences of this conflict. So to summarize, we just talked about a lot of economic impacts that could potentially happen, but could you kind of concisely explain exactly what those are from more of a 10,000 foot view? So number one will be the effect that uh, the disruption of Russian oil and uh, gas into global energy supply chains will have. Uh, both to Western Europe, emerging markets, and to a world economy that is grossly overheated due to record-setting inflation. From Western Europe's perspective, uh, the continent has been severely dependent on Russian oil supplies for the past decade to, for its energy needs, and will now have to shift and pivot very rapidly away, uh, and then to, which will intendantly cause um, severe strain. Uh, from the emerging market perspective, generally speaking, they are very low on foreign exchange and uh, any increase in uh, global oil prices can have seismic shocks on their economies. And um, my concern is that countries like Sri Lanka, for example, will really struggle as, as oil prices ebb higher and uh, 
the effect that will have on food and, and a range of other resources will be quite high. And then number three, of course, is the inflationary environment that I just discussed and rising energy prices will contribute to this mis utterly mismanaged and uh, utterly out of whack supply chain that we have globally at the moment. Yeah, and obviously those will be far reaching, far outside of even the industries we've listed just, just by the peripheral effects. There's one more uh, impact that we wanna talk about and that's humanitarian. So obviously there's, there's also this element of a refugee crisis coming out of Ukraine right now. Horrific, yeah. What impact do you think that will have yeah, I mean, I, you know, as as one would say proverbially, only time will tell, but uh, the dislocation of millions of refugees out of, out of Ukraine and into Western Europe, um, thus far we have seen a, a willingness uh, of outside governments to take in the refugees, which has been very, um, though difficult to see, you know, reassuring. However, uh, when you have orders of magnitude uh, of refugees coming out of Ukraine, uh, the strain that this can put on countries' resources that, uh, from economic and, and social perspective uh, can be quite high. And so already you're beginning to see a few countries say, hey, we've ha we can only absorb so many more. Mm -hmm. And that's when the, the problems can begin to arise. Um, especially as the immediacy of this conflict begins to subside. Yeah, that's right. Well, Sanka, thank you so much. These are some very important questions for us to be uh, not only considering, but for us to understand and have explained. So thank you so much. Thank you.